Turn with me, if you again, with me again, if you will, to Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter eight today. Second Corinthians chapter eight. <clears throat> We'll look at the first nine verses uh, this morning. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 9. Years ago when I was flying with the Air National Guard, uh, sometimes I would walk into the pilot's lounge and there would be sitting some of my flying friends like Brian Bunn, although he disavows that he would have ever done this, but he would have. Um, and they would say things like, oh, here comes the preacher, somebody passed the hat. And uh, it caused me to realize uh, how the world sees the church. That we always have our hand out asking for money. I mean, why would the fact that I'm a pastor necessarily mean I'm about to take an offering? Except that's what the church does. It collects money, right? Well, in reaction against that, I've got to where I hate to talk about money and uh, kind of avoid speaking on it, but when you're preaching through a passage of Scripture, you can't avoid it, and uh, the Bible certainly doesn't avoid talking about money. And in 2 Corinthians, we come to this section that we begin in chapter 8, where uh, we're going to hear what God has to say about Christian giving, about our use of the financial resources he's entrusted at our hands so let's hear something of what he has to say as we begin this section this morning. Let me read these first nine verses. <clears throat> and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that, so that you through his poverty might become rich." This passage presents to us uh, two great principles concerning Christian giving. There are more to come later in this chapter and in the next, but two that I think we see in this passage this morning, and they are, the first of them is this. Give because God gave. Give because God gave. If you've ever driven across the country, somewhere out in the mountains, somewhere out in the Rockies, You'll pass a little sign along the side of the road that, uh, that says Continental Divide. And, and you might just miss that and uh, uh, not even notice if you didn't know what that is, but that's a significant point. For when you cross that point, you cross the watershed line between the east and the west. Everything from here to that point up in the mountains somewhere 
every, every drop of rain that falls this side of that line is going to find its way into some little stream and into some little river and bigger rivers and eventually into the Pacific. And every drop of rain that falls on the other side of that line is going to find its way down into little streams and tributaries and down into rivers and off into the Atlantic. That continental divide forms a great line of demarcation down across the North American continent. Now, when the grace of God appeared in Jesus, just such a remarkable lines drawn both in history and in our lives. For, for when Christ came, everything changed. And when the grace of God comes into our lives, everything changes. So that from that time forward, life is divided into things since I've come to know the grace of God and the life before I knew the grace of God. That was true of the apostles' experience. He used to, oh, he was a very religious man. He used to speak of a law and reward and of sin and works and of trying harder to win God's favor and of thinking he was doing quite well and sometimes not being so sure. But when he came to know the grace of God that had appeared in Jesus, he now speaks of God's gift and he speaks of having right standing in Jesus before God and he speaks of faith rather than his works and he speaks of good news and eternal life and, and, and living hope. The grace of God and Jesus changed everything. And that good news of the appearance of God's grace in Jesus is the basis of our whole text here. That God gave himself to us sinners in the person of Jesus. That Jesus came, as we read this morning, to bear the holy wrath of God, that we might have new life. And that changes everything. Now that's the point made in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. God gave himself to us in Jesus. Now how important is this? <clears throat> well, this grace of God is such an important watershed in history and in our lives, that when the Apostle Paul wants to talk about something as down-to-earth and mundane as uh, giving money to some cause, in this case, the needs of the church in Jerusalem. He doesn't go into some fundraising mode like we do in, in the church these days. He goes back to this great truth, this gospel, this watershed of history that God gave himself to us in Jesus. That's the controlling truth in regard to our giving. We give because God gave. Now understand that the church in Paul's day was uh, uh, not so much different than the church in our day. It had money problems too. Everyone had needs. The church in Jerusalem was having terrible needs. Uh, uh, we might say there was a recession going on there, but uh, probably worse than that. There was persecution of Christians there. And uh, uh, there was desperate need among uh, God's people. Paul himself had great needs. He had to work another job making tents in order to be able to uh, fund his own uh, missionary work. And the churches to which he appealed for help were not much better off. They were little struggling churches that didn't have enough for themselves. And at the same time, also just like today, other people were out there milking the church for every dollar they could get. There were some whom Paul facetiously calls the super apostles. And they charge big bucks for their ministry at the, 
and their ministry went forward on the backs of struggling little churches that couldn't afford to give that kind of money. There were others who were out peddling the word of God with schemes, uh, money-make schemes, specifically geared toward the church crowd. Like I said, things haven't changed so much between our day and Paul's day. So what kind of appeal could Paul make as he's trying to gather money to uh, help the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem? What kind of appeal could he make that uh, would bring a godly perspective on this subject and not, not fall into the abuses that were so common and, 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 and that would, 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 not, would make, make the legitimate need known without seeming to join in with the greed that was always around that would express godly concern without just getting a reputation for, oh, there's Paul out passing the hat again. Well, Paul goes back and he appeals to the grace of God in Jesus and asks people to give because God gave. Actually, Paul didn't dream this up. This is how Jesus taught. Uh, it's an incident in Luke 7 that you probably remember the story. Jesus is invited to dinner at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. And as they're uh, reclining at dinner, that's how they ate then, kind of stretched out on a couch, like a woman enters the room while they're making nice conversation, I suspect. A woman who is quite noted, uh, has terrible immoral reputation. And she comes in and uh, she stands at Jesus' feet crying wetting his feet with her tears and then stooping down and drying his feet with her hair and kissing them and putting perfume on them. Well, Simon the Pharisee was appalled at this display. How could Jesus not know who this woman is, what kind of woman she is? And if he knew what kind of woman she is, how could he even let her touch him? But you remember Jesus' reply. He says, Simon, you know, I came in here and you didn't even give me water to wash my own feet and look what she's done. And then he adds this interesting statement. He says, he who is forgiven much, loves much. And he who is forgiven a little, loves a little. You see, Jesus is already saying that giving flows from the fountainhead of the grace of God. That we give in gratitude for what God has given to us. But our text doesn't just end with Jesus giving himself in his once-for-all sacrifice. There's another kind of grace at work here, the continuing work of God to give, the work of God's Holy Spirit whereby he gives us spiritual gifts or what we might call Christian graces. Those things are the outworking of Jesus' work applied to us. Personal endowments of grace. That's what verse 7 is talking about. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, in your love for us, those are all personal endowments of grace, Christian graces. See, you also excel in this grace of giving. See, grace of God was not just the watershed of history. It's a radical change in our lives. Through Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us and endows us with gifts for living, Christian graces. That changes everything. For now we live out the grace of God. Ephesians 4 talks about this. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. 
Peter says in 1 Peter 4, each one should use whatever spiritual gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. And so here in 2 Corinthians 8, giving is a grace, a specific practical gift of ministry which is given to us by the exalted Lord Jesus who died for our, for our sins and then gave us his Holy Spirit. It's a grace that's been given to us that we might give because God gave. Now in our day we have lots of other ideas about giving floating around. Many things have sprung up in the church over the centuries. Some of them are almost comical, but they're not really biblical. For example, giving is not just some investment in the church business. The people who invest in churches, they buy church bonds and st stuff like that. That's not giving. That's all right thing to do, but that's a business investment. Nor is our giving some nonprofit tax write-off to keep us in a lower tax bracket. It's not wrong to declare our... our, our uh, gifts as uh, on our tax returns, but the IRS doesn't determine our giving. We're obligated to give whether the IRS allows it or not. Nor is giving membership dues paid to belong to our church, or, or, or worse, the church's form of taxes levied on its citizens. You're, you're part of this. This is your tax this year. Nor is giving a means of quieting our consciences because of our failures in other areas. We'll buy God off with a few extra dollars. Nor is our giving to be a, the, the church admission fee. You know, good show at church. We pay good money. The show's not so great. A couple bucks will do. Worst of all, biblical giving is certainly not giving the preacher a tip. Good tip if I've been treated nice and given personalized attention. Poor tip to register my plaints. The truth is this pastor doesn't know what you give. I make it my business not to know. Now, all of those are reasons why people give sometimes, but biblically, we give because God gave to us. Giving is a Christian grace. It's been given us to exercise. Giving is a reflection of what Christ has done and what God has done when he gave his only son. That's what our text is trying to tell us from the very first verse. Brothers, I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. What grace? The grace of giving. Giving flows from the fountainhead of God's grace. We give because God gave. Now that's the rationale for our giving, but what does it look like? How does it work then? Which brings us to our second point. Give like God gave. We give because God gave first, but secondly, give like God gave. You know, one of the most difficult things for us to do is to take a bare, sterile principle, something we believe to be true, and then try to figure out how to work out all the implications of that in all the areas of our lives. That's really hard. 
But the truth is, we almost never ask anyone to do that. We don't just teach people abstract principles and say, now you go figure out how to work it out. No, we teach by modeling. We show people how as we teach them why. It goes together. It's how we teach in our homes. We model what we believe. We model what our children should be long before they understand the words. If you don't believe it, just look at some of these children around here and watch them. They'll walk just like their daddy walks. Who taught them that? They'll stand there with their hands on their hips and their head cocked just like their mother does. How do they get that idea? Somebody sit down and lecture them on that? They'll say exactly the same things they hear at home, bad words and all. Because we model. We don't just work out abstract principles. We do what we've learned. We live like what we've seen. And so the Apostle Paul calls these people to give like God gave to us. Now, he could talk about the example of Jesus, and he does that in other places like Philippians 2. But here, he picks up a secondary example. He says, let me hold before you the example of the churches in Macedonia, because they've learned to do this. Let me tell you about them. Now, in case you don't know much about the churches there, let me uh, refresh your memory. Ancient Macedonia is what we now call northern Greece. It's that uh, area along the coast of the Aegean Sea, just to the west, across the water from uh, present-day Turkey. The churches in this area were planted by the Apostle Paul, but they never seemed to be great successes. For example, Paul went to Philippi and uh, uh, just had the very small beginnings of anything going there before he got beat and uh, thrown in uh, jail, and then the next morning hustled out of town, and he left the beginnings of a church there, I guess you could call it that. There was the jailer who had become converted in, uh, in the uh, earthquake the night before. There was a slave girl who had been delivered from the uh, fortune-telling fortune spirit that she had, and there was a traveling saleswoman named Lydia who happened to be in town. Not a great church, you understand, but the beginnings of three converts at least. And Paul moved on to Thessalonica, but the trouble followed him to Thessalonica. And we figure he could not have been there more than two weeks, and maybe only a, a few days. And he was, they beat up the host uh, where he was staying, and uh, they hush, ushered him out of town there. And he left, what, a handful of believers in Thessalonica. And on to Berea he went, and the same trouble followed him in Berea, until finally they snuck him out of town and took him down to Athens. This was a tough place, Macedonia. It's not easy to be a Christian in Macedonia. Even Paul writes back to the church in Thessalonica, and he reminds them of how they received the word in much tribulation and endured suffering at the hands of their own countrymen. In other words, these are not mega churches here, folks. These are little struggling bodies of believers. Little struggling bodies of believers. Not like the prominent church back in Jerusalem with thousands of members, I know. Not like the great success story in, in, in Ephesus, where churches had been planted all throughout the province, all up and down the, the Lycus Valley. No, that's not Macedonia. These are little bodies of believers trying to be faithful in a hard place. Oh, but the really significant thing is that the grace of God had come to Macedonia. And when the grace of God came to Macedonia, these people's lives were changed. And they began to work that out in their experience. And they understood that even the use of their meager, meager financial resources had to reflect the grace of God that had come in Jesus. 
And so well did they work that out that Paul holds them up, this pitiful little church, holds them up as an example. Look at your brothers and sisters in Macedonia. If you want to know what it looks like to give like God gives. Now as he talks about them here, three, uh, kind of three descriptions come uh, of, of what God's giving looks like in the Macedonian church. The first is that they gave themselves first. Look at verse 5. They did not do so as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. I was impressed when I studied these churches that their gifts always came with people attached. They never just sent money, they sent people to take the money and then to do whatever was needed when they got there that the money couldn't do. How accurately that reflects the grace of God. When God saw us in our sinful condition, he didn't just send a check. God became man and dwelt among us, suffered our humiliation, walked in our shoes, Emmanuel, God with us. The same concept applies to us this morning. When we talk about Christian giving, we're not trying to separate you from your money. Oh no. It's you that God wants. Your money is just one of the many things that comes with you. You and your time, you and your ability, you and your plans and your dreams, you and your possessions, your house, your car, your savings account, your paycheck, your job, you and everything about you. That's what God wants. Recently, the council committed the chapel to support Steve Lau up in his work in Vancouver. Sure, he needs the money, but a lot of people need the money. We could send a check anywhere in the world. What's different about this? This is a place that we can not just send money, we can go and help and do something. They gave themselves first. That's what it looks like to give like God gives. To give yourself. Second uh, little principle that emerges here is that they gave themselves into poverty. They gave themselves into poverty in order to make other people prosper. Look at verse 2 and 3. Out of their most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. We know that's the case because when Paul writes to the Philippian church, he, he talks about their gifts and how they're a fragrant offering and then he promises it. Know that God will supply your needs. They gave themselves into neediness. These are not rich churches giving away their surplus funds that they didn't really need anyway. These are people who have such a concern for the welfare of Christ's church that they gave away the things they needed themselves. They created a poverty situation for themselves in order to relieve it with someone else. Isn't that what Christ did for us? Isn't this the nature of God's grace? Look at verse 9 again. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be made rich. Christ was rich with all the glory of heaven. He became poor. He was humiliated. He went to the cross. He suffered. He died. He endured the judgment of God. Why? So you wouldn't have to. 
He made himself poor so you wouldn't have to feel the weight of the poverty of your sin, but could know the glory of his riches. So the Macedonian church gave themselves into poverty if necessary to relieve the needs of others. Well, folks, as we live together and walk together in the church as part of the broader church in the world, let me tell you, if we don't have enough concern to suffer with some inconvenience or to endure some pain or to do without some luxury, how can we say we know the grace of Christ? We are called, we're prodded by the example of the Macedonians to give like Christ gave. That means to make ourselves poor, if necessary, sometimes, to relieve the suffering of our brethren. That cuts across the grain of the old look out for number one mentality that we hear all around us all the time. But then again, the grace of God changes everything. Well, one more little principle here about giving like God gave. We read here that they gave with joy. They gave with joy. You see it again in verse 2 and in verse 4. Out of their most severe trial, their, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And in verse 4, Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. <laughs> we often have such a grudging attitude toward giving. It's something we have to do. It's about the same as our attitude toward uh, paying taxes every April when tax day rolls around. We hate it. Oh, well, I guess I have to do this. Boy, that pastor, that church better remember this and they better appreciate this. That's not the pattern of the Macedonian churches. It was their joy to give. It was their ministry to participate. It was God's grace in their lives that found expression. They wanted to participate in this. So with joy, they sought the opportunity to mirror God's gift to them. And in such giving, they certainly accurately reflected the giving of God. For our Lord did not begrudgingly become a man. He did not unwillingly hang on a cross, somehow trapped there. He said, oh no, nobody takes my life away from me. I lay it down voluntarily for my people. In Ephesians 5, we read that Christ loved his church and gave himself. Indeed, in Hebrews 12, reminds us that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. So Paul can write in the very next chapter, to these same Corinthian believers. Each man should give whatever he's decided his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. Give like Jesus gave for the joy set before him. And if you can't give with joy, if your knowledge of the grace of God does not cause your heart to well up in gratitude that you joyfully want to honor God with your wealth, then keep your money. Keep your money. God wants joyful giving like he gave to us. We're not talking about fundraising here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The Bible doesn't talk about fundraising. Nor is this some crisis appeal full of sensationalism and fear. No, the Bible doesn't do that. The scriptures teach us of the grace of giving. It's one more thing for everything in our lives is this way that comes from the gospel. 
God gave himself to us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God gave his spirit and gave us Christian graces, equipping us to give because God gave. And changing our hearts so that we want to give like God gave. That's Christian living that flows out of the gospel. That's what's held before us here. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, there's so many needs and there's so many ways that people try to get us to uh, give money to this cause or that. Lord, we become hardened against even the most uh, clever approaches. And the church, Lord, unfortunately has been right in the thick and continues to be right in the thick of those fundraising techniques. And we often, Lord, become hardened to that aspect of the Christian life. Father, I pray you'd rearrange your thinking soften our hearts, not to fundraising techniques, but to see that the gospel has far-reaching implications for us. That this wonderful truth that you have sent your Son to be our Savior at such great cost has implications for how we see ourselves and our relationship to one another and what kind of stewards we need to be of the things you entrust into our hands. So, Lord, deliver us from the materialistic uh, mindset of our day. Deliver us from the guilt-ridden mindset that people would try to impose upon us. Oh, Lord, give us a heart that beats with the gospel. A heart full of gratitude because of your grace that looks honestly at how we might serve you with everything you put in our hands, our time and our talent, as well as our financial resources. Remake us, Lord, from the inside out that we would be the kind of disciples that you want. And we would live in gratitude to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.